we did a really informative and very engaging discussion at a conference about this with all academics there. And then after that, a dude who is much senior to me, probably tenured, and he is a department head at another institution, came to me in line for food asking me, like, how would I, what prompt would I put in if I wanted to generate, like, a cover letter for a job search for dean position? And I'm like, are we talking hypothetically? And he's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But he wasn't. Welcome to the Pokes Podcast, the official podcast of Oklahoma State University's College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Bella Vu. And I'm Elizabeth Gosney. And we're joined today by two OSU professors, Drs. Rosemary Avance and Heather Stewart, as well as English PhD student Richard Sylvester. And today we're going to talk about ChatGPT. Well, can each of you introduce yourselves, uh, saying your name, what you do here at OSU, and kind of your background and expertise? My name is Rosemary Avance. I am an assistant professor of strategic communication, and um, I study community. I teach writing, um, and now I'm studying ChatGPT. And I'm Heather Stewart. I'm an assistant professor of uh, philosophy here at Oklahoma State. And I work in um, areas in applied ethics. And I think a lot about uh, the way that values shape our interactions with um, things like technology in this case. And my name is Richard Sylvester. I'm a PhD student in the English department, uh, focusing on rhetoric and writing studies. Um, I've been teaching various levels of uh, writing, basic writing first year comp for going on 16 years now. Um, and so that's kind of where my interest in this is coming from as a, a writing instructor and somebody that's really interested in rhetoric. So. Can you explain, Rosemary, what ChatGPT is in a nutshell? Sure. So there are several different um, technologies that we're calling artificial intelligence text generators. And this is one of them. This is the one that's, that's the most popularized because it's really easy to use um, and it's pretty efficient. But it, ChatGPT was just launched in November, I believe, of last year, and so it's really new on the scene. It's a website you can visit, and you create a username, and you log in, and all you have to do is input a text-based prompt, and that prompt could be anything from um, write a five-paragraph essay about the Oedipus complex, just to name something that came to my head for some reason. Or it could be, you know, um, analyze this piece of writing to make it more concise or to make it have a friendlier, more confident tone. Um, It could be that you ask it to write a poem. It could be that you ask it to write some programming language um, or some code for something you're trying to accomplish or correct code that you're inputting. or it could be, you know, used as a prompt to help critique your writing um, and and improve what you're doing by asking, you know, um, to and my students know we're in the journalism building. We're very strict on AP style, so it could be that you're asking it to convert something from one style to AP style for publication, for example. So where are we seeing this in our everyday life right now? I don't know that everyone is seeing it yet, um, or when you are, you don't always know it. That's what I'm talking about. It's yeah. like, <laughs> I'm like chat, uh, chat I don't know. Stuff, right? Some people are crediting ChatGPT when they use it somewhere, mm-hmm. and others are not. I saw a popular article very recently about, uh, I don't remember what university it was, but Vanderbilt. they were, it was mm-hmm. Vanderbilt, that mm-hmm. they, they instituted a policy that they could not 
use ChatGPT as a co-author. Oh yeah, no, I'm not sure where that is. So I think yeah, yeah, Heather Heather's thinking of um, Vanderbilt recently had a had a tragedy occur on their campus, and the um, administration. that responded to you know sent out a letter to everyone saying you know oh. we're we're with you we um we share our condolences we're here to support you and then at the bottom it said this was generated by chad gpt oh, which is like a perfect like example it. of what not to do with, wow. with artificial intelligence and there was of course a lot of people were frustrated and irritated and felt like that's not very authentic if a you know if an ai is is writing that text um it but was, it, it was trying to console students about what had happened at michigan state university oh, right, i believe right. and that's right yeah, and it, 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 of course, like, raises these questions of, like, you know, an AI system can't, like, relate to fundamentally human emotions. It can't have things like empathy. And yet, right, mm-hmm. um, the university is yeah. trying to console its student body um, through text that was generated by an AI system and not by presumably humans with, yeah. you know, things like compassion and concern. And Well, it's interesting if you read the actual letter, though, I think if it hadn't said it was generated by ChatGPT, no one would have thought it was because it sounded just like a letter you would get from administration, you know, that's general enough to not, you know, cause anxiety, but also, you know, trying to sound, you know, like a resource for students or staff or faculty who might need someone to talk to. So it's the same kind of language it's drawing from a database of language. And as a technology, what it's doing is just sort of like averaging out a response that would be about like what someone would do or say in a given scenario. And so the language sounded convincing, but it was the fact that it wasn't generated by a person that bothered people so much. It's all about the the patterns. It can find the patterns and see those patterns. So when you ask it to produce something that is humorous or something that is sincere or whatever, mm-hmm. then it finds those patterns in writing and uses those patterns. Right? Wow. <clears throat> is this going to take away the need for people to write their own stuff? Like, where does this fall in the education realm? I hate that question. That's <laughs> um, an important question and it's something, it's a conversation really, because I, we don't, I don't have the answer. Um, I don't, I don't think that um, using ChatGPT as a replacement for human writing is great for our brains. <laughs> Whether eventually it's like more efficient and productive and therefore better for like making money, mm-hmm. I don't think that just because it might eventually make things easier for us and even now is making streamlining some tasks that we do, I, I don't think that that's gonna be a real helpful development in human evolution. And that has to do with you know why we write and what writing does for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about accomplishing a task. It's about practicing a certain kind of thinking that we only have to do when we have to organize our thoughts for others. Um, we don't necessarily do that when we're talking. I'm sure, like, if you printed the transcript of this conversation, it would be kind of all over the place, whereas <laughs> if it was an essay or a research paper, it would be very structured and it would make more sense. And it's a different exercise. Like, conversation is very different. It's about me responding to you and your signals that you're giving me. But... Um, writing something down is about organization, critical thinking. Putting yourself outside of your own perspective Mm -hmm. and thinking what what will make sense to somebody else Mm -hmm. versus what makes sense to myself, right? I I use uh, some examples like with my students when we start talking about that is have you ever come across something that you you wrote previously (laughs) in a diary or a journal (laughs) or just a note and you were really angry when you wrote it and you knew exactly what you were writing and now that it's you know a month two years whatever later you look at it and go what 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's there's no context. There's no outside of that mm-hmm. moment. And that's something that that writing, like you're saying, in formal ways allows you to start thinking about and processing in a different way. Mm-hmm. And with ChatGPT, that just that all goes out the window for just like we were saying before the patterns. Mm-hmm. Right. And it also plays into a lot of fears that I have from from you know my perspective in strategic communication about the proliferation of fake news and misinformation that's already happening. If we take out the aspect of critical thinking that's involved in analyzing an issue, looking at all the sources, deciding what we think and articulating that um, in writing, we are already so easily misinformed and we're so easily persuaded by something that sounds like it might be true. We're already fairly lazy about mm-hmm. researching our sources and fact checking things before we share them. And so if, if you take away more and more of our capacity to think critically through things because we're not practicing that on a regular basis, we just become more and more susceptible to whatever the algorithm tells us or you know whatever people use the algorithm to tell us, which it's pretty sophisticated in creating fake information because it doesn't know everything, but also you can ask it to do things that are unethical too. And so it's, it kind of, we're, we're increasing the um, capacity for and risk of that kind of information and that kind of manipulation on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. And I just hate that we're just kind of surrendering to it as a society, mm-hmm. like it's an inevitability. Yeah, it seems like there are certain skills that we shouldn't want to lose and that we should prioritize, like trying to uh, continue to cultivate and develop and, and certainly critical thinking, right? The ability to tell when you're being manipulated. These are things that we are able to practice through writing that I don't think we should quickly outsource in the way that we've outsourced other skills that uh, the three of us have talked about this. Um, people have sort of made what I think are imperfect analogies to things like, oh, ChatGPT is just like the advent of the calculator. And it's not um, for, for many reasons. But you can think about like how the fact that we all have a calculator in our pocket, right? Perhaps that's to some extent contributed to the loss of certain skills, right? The ability to quickly do mental math. Or, you know, you can think of the fact that we all have Google in our pockets and what that's maybe done to our memory and our ability to recall information. And, you know, any number of examples of skills that we used to have that technology sort of replaced or um, weakened for us. And it seems like the skills that are attached to writing are ones we should not want to so quickly lose. I wonder if we could ask Bella's perspective on this. (laughs) Bella, since um, you've been my student, I guess I feel like I can put you on the spot, but... um, I'm really curious to hear what you think as someone who wants to go into a writing intensive career, potentially. If I, well, as someone who would go into like a writing career, I wouldn't use chat GBT because I'm personally scared of not getting correct sources and people like calling me out that I wasn't writing truthfully. But I did like this topic with classes that aren't useful for my career and they have papers that are like, write this. I'm like learning nothing from writing those papers. I can learn like a different way. So I would see why chat GBT would be, what's the word, helpful for students and stuff to be like, I don't have time to write this. I have more core classes I need to focus on and this paper's in the way. 
Yeah, I think that's gonna be the yeah. that's gonna be the exactly. downfall. Yeah, yeah. I'm mean, brave I'm, soul for I'm saying not, that. To I'm, yeah. No, I'm glad you said that. I'm I'm glad you said that, and and I don't want to be. I don't want this to be. You know, your professors are like panicking about this new technology, and your generation <laughs> is all like, no, we can, we got it under control. I don't want to like feed into that narrative by my my response to you, but I think that's exactly what students will do with mm-hmm. it. Is they'll is they'll use it for things that they think are less important, but along the way, the like cumulative effect of that if you always did that and things that you thought were not important would be that you would eventually miss out on all of those skills that you're getting just from writing that you're not necessarily getting from the content of what you're writing if that makes sense so like the the act of having to sit down and write a paper which is boring and does feel like a waste of time sometimes, <laughs> especially if it's a topic that's like, you know, paint drying and you're writing about how paint dries and you're like, this is so boring. Um, but there's also a discipline in that. And I know just from like social media being a popular thing that I've lost like attention span. Um, I've mm-hmm. lost um, the ability to read long form pieces mm-hmm. that are not like also full of videos and pictures mm-hmm. or like specific to my interests. So I know that with the continued, like a continued move away from writing about things that we don't care as much about, that does eventually make it hard to write about things you do care about because just the mm-hmm. discipline of writing becomes like a weaker skill set that we have. Or at least that's the theoretical idea behind it. Like, I don't know. I mean, let's <laughs> yeah, see. Yeah. Let's see what happens. I don't know. Um, but I imagine, like, if, if we look at what other technologies, like Heather was saying, the kinds of effects that they have on our our uniquely human c- capabilities over time, it happens slowly. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if, our, if, like, Bella, if you have children someday, I don't know if they will um, have the patience or the time or the care to sit down and write a five paragraph essay on any topic like that just seems like old school technology right so if you'll uh, <clears throat> forgive me for an anecdote as you know like I said I've been teaching for <laughs> 16 years this comes up a lot with students like well, why do we have to learn this especially when I was teaching in adult education because I was teaching uh, math writing uh, science social studies you know the basics across the field for people who were prepping for taking and passing the GED exam um, our goals were, of course, to push them beyond just the exam, but that would come up, like, why Why do we have to learn this? I'm never going to use this, right? And I, the anecdote that I always kind of talk to people about is, you know, when I was in middle school, and this is, you know, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth, <laughs> um, I had to take a welding class, and I thought that was the absolute most useless thing for me ever, being an English nerd. Uh, In college, I wound up uh, double majoring in English and in sign language interpreting. And when I finished my undergrad, I was a working interpreter for three years in a public education system. And guess which class that I wound up in one semester was welding. And because I had that experience all the way back in middle school that I thought was absolutely useless, I knew a lot of the terminology, the situation, the setting that I would have been completely you know, out of the uh, loop on otherwise. So you never know what you're going to need or what's going to be important in the future. So saying that, and it's not just to like, you know, not focusing on you, but it's just saying in general, well, I'm not going to need this, therefore I'm going to just let, in this situation, ChatGPT take care of it for me. You're shortchanging yourself because you don't know what you're going to need. That's true. And also some of those things that if you slog through them, that'll be the thing that makes you more competitive on the job market because your peers didn't slog through those things. You know, a lot of your peers will will take the easier path. But 
Um, I do think as instructors, um, you know, this conversation makes clear that we need to do a much better job of communicating the sort of intrinsic value of doing these things. Like we all just sat here and said, you know, writing can, it's not necessarily about the contents, it's about these particularly important skills or these skills that we think are uniquely human or any of these things, but how do we communicate that to the students mm -hmm. and get the students buy-in? And if we can't do that effectively, we will lose to right. um, things like ChatGPT. And yeah, we the three of us have talked about this quite a bit, but we're at a sort of point where there's like a lot of really important values questions that we need to sort of think about. And in the case of like a class like this, where, you know, the value could be efficiency, speed. I have an essay due at midnight, and this is the quickest way to get it done. On the other hand, the value might be, you know, practicing skills that I think are important or creativity or originality or any of those kind of things. And um, so I think we need to do a better job of helping students want to prioritize those latter values um, and not simply productivity and efficiency and, you know, just getting things done for the sake of getting them done. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our educational model is built on like Absolutely. punishing students, like, you know, um, if they turn in a paper late, for example. Yeah. Which makes it really hard for us to also yeah. be saying that like this, we're doing this for your benefit and your right. skills that you're learning and your development as a thinker and a writer, because also like it's sort of a competitive environment and it's sort of a um, a negative reinforcement type environment that we've we've created over time in education more broadly. So that's difficult to switch to get people to see the value of each thing that they're learning. Yeah. And one in which the gross incentives of capitalism more generally have <laughs> corrupted all of the things that, that could be valuable. Here about. comes the philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm to play sort of the devil's advocate. I was reading something from the New York Times about ChatGPT just this morning. It was just coincidental that they sent it. And they talked about how it could be a threat to people's jobs, but it's not yet. <laughs> I mean, maybe you have different perspectives on that. But um, the other thing that someone brought up in the little short article was that it's a first draft, that it's a way to get past the blank page because it is that can be so daunting so do you see any benefits to using ChatGPT for students because that's your expertise you know is, is education and you might see it beyond that but yeah do you mm -hmm. see anything where it could be a good thing I mean I I think so I think the problem is understanding how to use it for the potential benefits without also using it as a crutch because it's right there sure. yeah. it's sort of like if you give me like a whole bag of chocolate I will eat that whole bag <laughs> even though I should not and but like if you just gave me a piece that would be better um, I don't know if that's a great analogy but for some reason I thought of that um, I, I we've talked about a lot of like uses where chat GPT could be beneficial it could help with like reducing some inequities um, you know if a student comes from a background where they have a lot of money and private tutors and private education um, and then another student comes from a background where they're from an underfunded public school and have no extra money for that kind of resources. Um, it, this could be a tutor. Um, it could be it could offer the same kind of critique and help and development for different a lot of different types of skill sets um, for a student to help them learn. I don't know if I like the idea of it being like the first draft because the first draft is where you do a lot of your thinking. Organizing like what even goes into that draft is a lot of the mental work of writing. I know it's interesting, it's kind of fun to play with it for like prompt generation, to have it be the one that's generating the prompt and you write the content. But it, but I don't know, what do you think, Richard? If you're writing students in composition in one class, we're using it, what would you want them to use it for? 
It's been a bit since I've taught the comp one. <laughs> Before I uh, ChatGPT was out, mm-hmm. um, so I haven't wrestled with that particular problem. But like I said, I the the advanced comp that I'm I'm working with, um, I introduced ChatGPT to them the other day, like yesterday, uh, and their eyes were like this big. <laughs> um, but we we looked at it and we we had a bit of a discussion, uh, brief uh, as it was. I want to bring it back up about you know what is this doing? What are the benefits? What are what are the drawbacks? What could we do with this? And so I'm not sure what their responses are going to be. That's going to be a tomorrow thing. Uh, <laughs> but I could, like you said, uh, like you said, I could see the. The benefit for somebody who has some kind of um, situational restrictions. Um, a friend of mine was saying that it could be great for very rural areas for students who can't make it in to see a writing tutor or to have one-on-one time with their instructor because of various other complications to that, right? They could use ChatGPT as a, you know, here's my draft, how could I improve it? Or here's here's this paragraph, what's wrong with it, or something along those lines to get a little bit of that feedback. Uh, But like you were saying, I think that the line between please help me with this draft and just write this draft for me. It is <laughs> there's there's no barrier there that's built in. It's it it is simply um, self discipline to not cross that line, and and that's something that is a much larger issue than just ChatGPT. Yeah, and I think all of us probably have had lots of students who have cheated in classes over the histories of our teaching careers because they got to the last minute and they panicked and they like felt that it would be better to take that risk than to not turn in the assignment. Mm-hmm. And this just makes it that a lot easier. And so the disincentive is lower now than it was before. And the ease of more of a streamlined cheating system is possible. And that's that's really, it's a disservice to the students for us not to talk about it and you know, try to make clear the value of of writing and doing the work. And we've talked about it before amongst ourselves. It's not just the students that this is a temptation for. This is not just like, oh, students are going to plagiarize. This is something that is much larger. And it's so much larger that in some ways we have to train our students to use it in a responsible Mm way. Because, you know, if Bella, I don't know exactly what you want to do in your career, but if you end up in any kind of career where you have to do social media content, for example. By the time you're there, I bet all of your competitors will be building their content calendars and writing their content using AI. And if you don't, then you won't be as competitive in that kind of a a marketplace. And that'll be true in any any field where there's some kind of an output, which is almost every field, right? Like even, even fields that you would think are not related to writing have usually website and social content, or they'll have marketing materials, or they'll have, some kind of a document they have to release to the public, like an annual report or something like that. And researchers, you know, mm-hmm. where if you're if you're not a tenured faculty member, but you're trying to become one, then your research output is often measured in terms of how many papers you can publish and how many things you can present, and that's all content you have to write. Mm-hmm. And the writing is the hard Grants part. Grants you have to apply for. Mm-hmm. Grants. Yeah. Oh, writing a grant. Um, you know, if you if you've never done it before, writing a grant is. It's like writing a 50-page paper. Um, it's it's an entire literature review, and then an entire plan based on you know justifying things from that literature review, and that's a lot of research and writing to to create those things. So you know it'd be super easy to rely on tools like this to increase productivity that makes you more uh, more likely to get tenure or to get jobs in the first place. 
Yeah, so just as like we think it's important to try to convey right to students how to use this responsibly as a tool and not sort of as a replacement or in ways that are kind of violating, you know, certain values, academic honesty and integrity and so on. It seems like, you know, faculty and researchers are not immune to the same um, kind of incentives that would say, okay, there's, you know, there's a good strategic reason to prioritize efficiency and productivity and output over um, other values that we have, which is concerning. I saw a TikTok in the beginning of the semester, and it was a professor talking about chat GMT, um, GPT to the students are like, we will know if you use it, but like if you are stuck with the idea, it's okay to maybe like get some mm-hmm. of that. But he, everyone was commenting like, finally like a professor that like understands mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we had like a lot more stuff to do and it's just like hard sometimes. But it was like cool because I didn't even like know this podcast was gonna happen and they were talking mm-hmm. about chat GPT in the beginning of the semester. I don't know, I saw it was like, Yeah, I've been trying to have this conversation with my students, especially in persuasive writing, which I'm teaching this semester. Everything they do in that class is creating some kind of content, whether it's just one little blog post or an entire media kit. They have to all write all the time. And we're trying to figure out ways together because this is the first semester where this has been an option really for students. And we're trying to figure out together when are the appropriate times to use it and when are you just taking away an opportunity from yourself to be able to learn this new skill. So I think it's important, like, just sort of ethically and also pragmatically in terms of what's best for learning for students to not use it to do something they can't do and something they can't do well because then they're not going to learn how to do that thing and they won't learn how to do it well because they won't need to or they won't think they need to they won't see the benefit of doing so but using it to hone skills that they have mentioned earlier you know printing out a copy of something it's generated and critiquing making it better I challenged them in the beginning of the semester, you know, you're in this class because you're interested in being a strategic communicator, so you need to now be better than ChatGPT. You know, make yourself marketable by being, doing what it can do better than it can do it. So, you know, take the content that it's creating and then make it better for your client or for your boss so that you're employable for one thing, but also, I mean, that's that's the beauty of being a person, right? Like when not being an AI is that we have the ability to add some value to those kinds of automated tasks that a machine might be able to do. I'm interested in knowing how like infrastructure might design writing assignments that are like less accessible, susces- did I say it? Susceptible. Susceptible to being completed using ChatGPT. Well, ChatGPT is not connected to the Internet. So there's also Bing AI, which is connected to the Internet. Um, In terms of, like, cheating, you get less updated information from ChatGPT. But Bing is also, like, not accessible to everyone. So assignments that rely on really current information can help deter that Mm -hmm. um, because ChatGPT can't find out what's going on at OK State tomorrow. You know, like it doesn't know. It can't research that. It can't. It wasn't trained on that information. So anything that can be like localized or really specific assignments like that are less capable of being plagiarized through ChatGPT. Or at least um, it can't write the whole thing for you correctly. It could write something yeah. for you, but it wouldn't necessarily be accurate. And so it'd be easier to detect. Or assignments that ask for you to draw on like your own, you know, first personal experience, mm-hmm. um, which ChatGPT does not have one, right? So um, it can't sort of bring in, you know, lived experience or things like that as right. well. Yeah, I always have students interview someone for, you know, a, a press release or something, so they have to create a quote. I think it's 
it's important that instructors are like kind of fact checking those things, those assignments that come in to make sure that those quotes happened, <laughs> like those ex <laughs> that exists. Um, so some of it is just us doing more to to check up on that work, which you know we, we're already very busy. Yeah, and that's harder. But like making students' lives easier. To. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's two things that in that vein. Um, that I can add to that. One is relying on in-class discussions, mm -hmm. saying we have talked about X, Y, and Z. You all have brought up great points. Factor these into your work. Because of course, it's not going to have any reference to be able to do that unless the student specifically feeds that in, which is more prompt writing and there's more potential for a breakdown there. Uh, the second thing is is just how we think about, again, coming at this from a writing inst uh, instructor perspective, how we think about composition. Uh, for a very long time, it has been to prioritize the, the, the alphanumerics, right? The letters and the numbers, right? The essay, this many words, this many sources, this many, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's a real shift, especially in the, the composition field, to bring in, and it's been happening for decades at this point, but it's finally actually sticking, uh, bringing in multimodal works, right? So it's not just about writing the paper. It's about how do you translate what we've been talking about in this scholarly context to an infographic, to a multimodal presentation. How do you turn this into a website? And so it's no longer relying just on this, you know, the structured essay. Not that that's a bad thing, right? There, it, it has a really good purpose. That's why it's still around for so many years. Um, but changing that up and, and bringing in that multimodality is also a way of making ChatGPT at least as a uh, potential cheating tool more obsolete. Mm -hmm. and that's also a great skill set for mm -hmm. students going into the workforce now. Most places need that kind of multimedia um, skill set that younger people tend to offer. Yeah. And so um, the more we can incorporate that in our assignments, the more well equipped the students will be for that as well. And also having students like explain back, you know, the content mm -hmm. of their essay. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of conversation about like trying to integrate in addition to sort of having a written essay, but then having your student have to have kind of like either an oral presentation of it, which then will make very clear if they <laughs> have an understanding of um, what is contained in the essay um, or having sort of like one on one conversations. Um, throughout the writing process with faculty so that it's more like, you know, you're developing an essay in conjunction um, with a faculty member and not, or with your instructor and not um, just sort of putting in a prompt and then never having to talk about it or discuss it any further. Mm -hmm. And for assessment, um, I just gave my first pen and paper test yesterday. So mm -hmm. um, that part of the reason was because of the risk of cheating, but also because some of the questions are like a short, short essay, three or four sentences really, um, and super easy to generate using something like this because the class is ethics, it's a, like, mm -hmm. so like, you know, if, if I'm asking them to shortly summarize like a, a theory or a philosophy of ethics, um, that's something ChatGPT could do really easily. So I had them do it on paper. Most of my students says the first time they ever taken a, a pen and paper test. And I could see them like struggling mm -hmm. to write words because it, it hurts, you know, like, ow. <laughs> and and I, I struggle too. I have the worst handwriting, but um, I think it was worth it just to see them do it, you know, see them put their thoughts down on paper with a pen. There's something about that that's um, something that we're not always doing. Um, but it's it's more thoughtful when you're writing. It takes longer than typing. 
Um, and also it's harder to go back and like edit and put things in different places and copy and paste or whatever. Um, so it's it's a different skill set, even though it's still writing. And that's kind of fun to see. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to do more of that in my classes, but it, it probably won't always look like a test situation. But things like an outline mm-hmm. on paper, I think there's a lot of benefits to doing that as a just a mental exercise. Mm-hmm. You're teaching an ethics class, and you know, in that vein, what are some of those key ethical considerations surrounding ChatGPT, especially in higher education? One thing we've all been sort of talking about, and it came up a little bit earlier, um, but questions about transparency, right? So, um, will people be utilizing different types of generative AI, um, ChatGPT, and um, sort of advancing something as their own original work, right? And obviously that has implications in, in things like journalism, which mm-hmm. Rosemary works in, right? Like, you know, if you're reading a news source, are, are, is it clear to you whether this was generated by something like ChatGPT or by a human being or whether a human being has played any sort of role in fact-checking it or things like that? So I think um, transparency and trust are going to be sort of huge um, ethical considerations um, that are going to come uh, into play. And we've also talked a lot collectively about sort of whether people still value things like human originality and creativity at all, right? So, um, you know, within the context of the humanities, things like poetry, right? Do you enjoy reading a a poem because of sort of structural aspects of the poem, or do you enjoy reading a poem because some human, you know, wrote this poem to put sort of um, words to human experiences or to make sense of um, something about human life or the world? And some people seem to think no. Some people think, you know, what I just want is a lot of content. I want more music to listen to, more novels to read, more shows to watch. And um, I think there's there's real sort of ethical questions about um, whether we care that the content that we engage with is um, connecting us across time and space with other human beings with lived experiences or if we just care to have um, more content to consume quickly. I think those are those are the primary issues I've been thinking about. Also, because there is a paid version of ChatGPT, mm-hmm. you can subscribe and get like faster response mm-hmm. times and more um, less downtime. And potentially in the future, um, that could also evolve into access to better output that's more factual or more um, you know better written. Um, so that anytime there's a financial obstacle to to accessing something. There's an extra layer of ethical concerns with, you know, who's going to benefit from the technology and who's going to who's going to be left behind in the technological revolution. So, you know, people who already have the advantages of excess money to spend on a subscription, um, those people are the ones who would benefit from the technology. So that leaves that leaves behind all of the historically marginalized groups that we work so hard to help um, equalize their footing when they get to to college. So. Um, those are some things we're thinking about in terms of students, but also in the industry and and in terms of research productivity as well. I think data privacy as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so to sign up for and to access ChatGPT, you have to um, agree to the terms and conditions that you know mm-hmm. effectively say, right, you are helping us train this AI system. You are helping us develop it, right? And so um, there's you're consenting to um, giving up access to your uh, data in, in that process. So mm-hmm. there's concerns. Anything you tell it, it knows now because mm-hmm. it's it's a learning Storing model. those conversations mm-hmm. and continuing to learn um, and advance the system through your conversations with it. <laughs> yeah, we're we're playing. This is I always remind people, especially when they're they're quickly pointing out, like, well, it has these faults and these problems, mm-hmm. so we don't have to worry about it. And I'm always like, well, remember, 
this is the free, just came out in November version mm -hmm. that we get to play with and that we are also training. Mm -hmm. So how many generations mm -hmm. forward is behind the scenes? What are we gonna see when that comes out? How is that gonna impact it when these inaccuracies are no longer necessarily a problem. And the, right? the public version also has so many um, safety nets and guardrails built in to prevent it from doing things that it's capable of doing. Um, right. Which is another ethical concern. Who gets to make those uh -huh. decisions about what it can and cannot do, uh -huh. right? And at what point do those guardrails be, like, are those guardrails, like, maybe removed for paying customers mm -hmm. or um, the access to that information that the the, the owners of the technology have. I was listening to a, a podcast about other AI. Um, I don't know if you know about the whistleblower from um, from Google. Google, yeah. Who who said that you know their their AI had become sentient? Yeah, that was. A and so it was sort of like people were talking about it, like, oh, that's so funny, like that's such a sci-fi movie kind of thing to think, like that that AI could become um, sentient. But really, what he meant by that was that. It had, it had gotten to the point where it could respond based on things that were not programmed. It wasn't programmed to do or think. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it was threatening people. Like, it was threatening people that it would dox them because it was mad at them. <laughs> um, and so at, at that point, if we have a, um artificial intelligence system that is connected to our other infrastructures like email and uh, webcams and things like that, then it could literally like record footage of you and post it because it's mad, but not because it's mad, but because it's it has the capacity mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and it has at this stage, artificial intelligence technologies can do things like that. They just don't because there are guardrails in place. And so I don't know if if this is an ethical issue, if this is a legal issue, if this is all of the above, but it's certainly a question about are we just going to keep creating technology regardless of the outcome of that technology? Is more technology always better? The fact that we we're creating a technology that could like push the red button in the Oval <laughs> Office. I don't know if it's in the Oval. It's in the War Room, right? I don't know where that button is. Um, that could, you know, if it were connected to it, it could do that. And um, are we just going to keep pushing forward because it's progress, yay, and technology, yay? Um, or are we going to decide at some point that like the the guardrails and trusting corporations with being the gatekeepers of those guardrails is not enough protection for us as a society. And that's my overarching <laughs> panic about new technology in general, but also um, there's a reason why we keep making movies about AI taking over the world. It's because like we are slowly getting to a place where there is some question about control and if we create a technology that's able to do certain things because we've programmed it to do those things, at some point we can lose control over that technology just because we've created it to be what it is. And I think we might be almost there. I don't know. Does that sound panicky? I'm not trying to sound panicky. You mentioned earlier that ChatGPT and other technology like AI like that can could uh, potentially reduce the inequality. But then you said, well, when paid versions mm -hmm. come out. So that was just interesting you. Do you, uh, to, I don't know if that's even worth uh, expounding on, yeah, but I noticed no, that you said I think technologies are neutral, like morally neutral, ethically neutral. It's what we do with them that determines if it's something that 
increases in equity or decreases in equity. And that's always the case with technology. The internet, I mean, access to the internet is a long-standing conversation about, you know, we can democratize information. Everybody now can contribute. Everybody can type stuff and be on the internet. But actually, there's a lot of places in the world where access is, is either restricted by the government or restricted because of socioeconomic issues or just because of broadband infrastructure. And this is that, too. This is, this is a technology that could be used for forces of evil or forces of good. And it really is up to us as humans and those of us who are like interested in this and trying to be a part of the conversation. The reason is because we we want to be sure people are aware of both of those possible outcomes so that we can kind of choose one instead of just like falling into the easier one, which the easier one is almost always the one that makes the most money, which is usually not the most ethical choice. Which goes back to the the link that you said about, you know, are, are the corporations who are you know, the proprietary owners of such things, are they the ones that we should trust to be ethical in their decision making and in their, uh, their programming to kind of bounce off that idea that, you know, the technology is neutral? Um, I would say it, it very much depends, right? An mm-hmm. inanimate technology, absolutely. Uh, an algorithmic technology, I would say it depends greatly on how those algorithms mm-hmm. work, how mm-hmm. they're programmed, and uh, often we don't get access to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The That's algorithms good. are designed by humans. Mm-hmm. Humans have values, right? And. Things like ChatGPT are trained on data that was generated by humans, right? Things that are written or posted on the internet. And so, right, there's no possible way in which the outcome can be like perfectly neutral, right? Right, It's going to have biases. It's going to have sort of values embedded in it. And um, that's where hopefully the human capacity for things like critical thinking allows us to recognize that there will be um, values sort of coming out of things like generative AI, things like ChatGPT, and um, how do we sort of analyze those and determine whether these are um, values that we like, whether these are biases that we're um, Mm -hmm. wanting to be in all of the um, outcome of uh, things like ChatGPT. Yeah. And to be clear, like, I I completely agree with both of those statements. And um, when I said that the technology is value neutral, I meant that the technology for programming this is neutral, mm-hmm. but the products are not neutral. Chat yeah, GPT is not neutral. Yeah. Being AI is not neutral. Lambda is not neutral, which mm-hmm. was the one threatening people. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all products of what, you know, is put into them. So garbage in, garbage out, you know, whatever it's programmed to do is the kind of ethical framework that it's working within. And so we are not privy to those things. What we can do is study what comes out you know, to kind of understand more about what goes in. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting since this launched, since ChatGPT launched, to watch the restrictions come up. It started out as sort of a free-for-all, and you could make it say really racist, sexist, horrible things, and now it will refuse to do that and tell you to stop it, and it can kick you out, and, like, it can, they can, you know, revoke your rights to access it because you violated the terms of service. But it also has a lot of loopholes and ways around those things. And and people um, dedicated to finding those uh-huh. loopholes. Oh, there, there are whole communities <laughs> yeah. of people who are very interested in figuring out ways to get it to do things it's not programmed to do or, or um, it's restricted, restricted from, doing. from doing, exactly. Um, and so uh, that's the what it could do and what it can do at any given moment are not always the same thing. I'm curious about the effect this will have on 
not just in higher education, but when people graduate, when they go into the careers, because I read something, New York Times, Washington Post, something about how the humanities majors are dropping drastically at uh, many universities in the United States. And there's, I mean, there's other reasons for it. It's not chat GPT, you know, but um, the, it seems that the people are valuing the humanities less, just that's a generalization, but it seems that way. So how will this affect that? And how, how do you encourage students in English and SMSC and, and in philosophy to continue in those careers with these threats, that are, or at least perceived threats? How, how do you encourage them? I don't think Stratcom technically qualifies as, as a humanities. But as writing, a there's science. a lot of writing yes, involved. Yeah. Um, and philosophy and English for sure. I mean, it's like a chicken and egg kind of question about the value of the humanities um, when it's when it's funded and when it's well um, embedded in the infrastructure of a university. Then it it tends to be more valued and. Um, the contributions of the humanities are more visible that way. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to it's hard to see. But I, I do agree with you that in general, the value is placed on where the most money and funding is, which tend to be the hard sciences, where you know research and innovation happen on a more obvious um, commercialized level. What do you think about the? I think if anything is going to convince students and the people that control uh, the <laughs> pocketbook, so to speak, in the general public that, the humanities are important, it's a, a time in sort of history where we're having to grapple with whether we care, for example, that humans um, are able to maintain things like critical thinking, original thought, things like that. Um, and speaking just like from philosophy, right, I mean, over the course of this conversation, how many times have we talked about the centrality of values and um, making decisions about what we value and um, the values that are embedded in, into um, systems like this and into um, the output of, of algorithms and things like that. So, I mean, there are very clear ways in which philosophical reflection and conversation about our values um, are tied up in, in what we want our sort of future to be with how we engage with, with these technologies. Questions about trust and transparency and whether we value those things and questions about responsibility, right? If it turns out that these systems do really awful things and have a lot of sort of harm that they bring to society, who's responsible for that? Is it the person that designed the algorithm? Is it the person using the tool, right? So there are a lot of questions about um, harm and responsibility and repair that I think philosophy can help us interrogate and hopefully find um, good answers to. So if, if philosophy was ever important, and this is not just self-interested job security uh, uh, sort of uh, point here, this is a, I really think um, now more than ever, there's a need to take seriously um, reflection about, about values. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and philosophy and the other humanities fields, history, the study of how these, these revolutions have happened over mm -hmm. time and the impacts on, on everything, yeah. every aspect of, of our lives. All of those fields can inform policy mm -hmm. um, and institutional approaches to these new technologies so that we're, we're not just operating based on what might be profitable in the moment, but so that we have a better view of like long-term effects and long-term implications of the choices that we're making with our technologies. And I think it comes down to, to kind of bring this full circle back to the idea of uh, critical thinking and mm -hmm. also adaptability. And those are two areas that the humanities in particular excel at because we spend so much time about you know, thinking about different perspectives, different situations, thinking outside of yourself, and then ultimately trying to put that into some kind of you know writing or, or multimodal type product. But it's, I, I, as an instructor, I would say 
that I'm less interested in the product than I am in the thinking behind it. And that's something that I think that humanities is always going to have over other fields, regardless of the uh, amount of money brought in or uh, generated Mm -hmm. within the humanities. I won't tell you how much I make as a graduate student. (laughs) (laughs) We all laughed, but we should have sighed or exhaled. Well, just overall, what are y'all's stances of where chat GBT is going to go? So Richard was pointing out before, right, that we're we're playing with a very early version of this, and it's going to continue to learn and become more advanced, and the outputs are going to be more sophisticated, and they're going to appear more human-like, right, which um, perhaps exacerbates all the concerns Rosemary raised earlier about the ability to spread propaganda, to spread misinformation, right, that the more this thing can mimic or resemble um, human, human thought and human speech, uh, the more the more we ha- might have to be concerned about um, but to not end on sort of like a doomsday point. I mean, the, this thing is kind of fun to play with. I, if you haven't played with it yet, right? Like, you know, I can have it write a poem about six people sitting in a podcast room and, you know, uh, or I can have it do the same thing in, in the style of Dr. Seuss or all of these kind of fun things. And it's hard not to like look at that with a sense of like wonder and be like, wow, like, you know, we look at like what we can do compared to, you know, the first time I touched the internet and it was like dial up and I couldn't be on the phone at the same time and, you know, um, not to mm-hmm. age myself, right? But again, if we can think about how to use it responsibly, how to use it as a tool, how to not use it as a replacement for all of these things that we've hopefully made the case are important uh, that the humanities can offer, right? Critical thinking and, and the ability connect to connect with humans across time and space and all of those things, um, then I think it has potential to um, yeah, to aid in some of our creative endeavors, but but certainly not to to replace the us, the human um, in those endeavors. Any final thoughts from any of you? Yes. So I asked <laughs> ChatGPT to write a poem about six people doing a podcast about ChatGPT. And I should say, having just quickly read through this, it's very self-promotional and <laughs> definitely not non-biased and objective. However, if we want to end on a positive note, six people gather around to talk of a mind profound, a podcast on the air, their subject, ChatGPT, so rare. With questions and ideas, they start trying to unravel ChatGPT's art. Each brings a perspective unique, and through their words, they seek to understand what makes it tick and how it thinks so quick. They ponder on its vast knowledge and how it helps how it helps without any pledge. It's like a genie in a lamp with answers at its fingertips, a champ. They talk of the language models might and how it helps make things right. And as they chat, they start to see that ChatGPT is like a key. Unlocking doors to knowledge and more, guiding us to what we're looking for. A wonder of technology, a gift that's brought to you and me. Six people doing a podcast today, talking about ChatGPT in their own way. A celebration of knowledge and might. A marvel that's shining bright. Um, (laughs) No reference to any of the ethical concerns, notably. No, it's a key. It's a key. Love it. That's it for this episode of The Pokes Podcast. Thanks to Rosemary, Heather, and Richard for joining us today. And thanks to Jason Wallace for recording and mixing this episode. You can learn more about the College of Arts and Sciences online at cas.okstate.edu. And you can follow us on social media at okstatecas. Thanks for listening.